Hello there, and welcome to the No Longer Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we're continuing our, our we're in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview, which is the mandate of this podcast uh, series, or um, the big picture. And today we're looking at missionaries and money and continuing our series on whether or not it's okay to uh, raise support and to live on... Um, uh, yeah, to live on uh, support, uh, or whether you need to work a job on the side. And uh, I think I had planned to look at models, and there's about six different models of uh, raising support, being hired by a company, being hired by a nonprofit company, uh, working for a church, uh, having private resources, etc. Maybe we'll just leave those for the end, and let's do a biblical survey because um, I think that's what people really care about: is what does the Bible say about this issue. Um, before I, I jump into that, and uh, I'm pretty sure I didn't say this in the previous podcast. I actually pr- recorded the previous podcast three times before I was happy with it. Um, it's hard to talk about money. Um, and so I might have related this story. I hope not. But, or this concept. Um, it's really important for us to know that money doesn't... Um, just magically appear. It, it doesn't like the pink money fairy doesn't come and just bling 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 and, and make money appear. Um, living costs money, food costs money, housing costs money, everything costs money. And so if somebody is dedicating themselves to Christian work full time, um, the money's got to come from somewhere to support them. And uh, this is something that, um, well, let me illustrate it this way. Um, we have numerous times been um, provided housing to you know teenagers as they're transitioning out of home and kind of been that first place away from their parents. Um, as well, uh, working with students here, we have a drop-in center. I mean, um, uh, like the students live in a house where they try and, and, and it's close to the university and they try and invite people over and we have Bible studies there and stuff. So I'm very well aware of that difficult transition between living at your parents' house and then transitioning into the real world where, you know, you have to clean up after yourself, you have to do the dishes, you have to pay rent, you have to buy food. And um, a lot of people just don't get it. I mean, I didn't get it that age either. You know, you grow up, your parents pay for everything, you just think that things will magically appear, you just think your clothes will magically get washed, you just think... Uh, that you have rights, um, you have a right to housing, you have a right to a car, you have a right to gas in the car, um, and and to some extent when you're, you know, growing up in a home and people are, are taking care of you, you do have some rights, um, but you become an adult and you realize, well, actually, nothing is free, uh, somebody has to work for this, um, and uh, I think that oftentimes uh, when we come to church, we have an immature idea of, of money and where it comes from. And um, oftentimes, a lot of people that come to church are freeloaders, honestly. Um, they just expect that somebody else will pay for the pastor, somebody else will pay for the building, somebody else will pay for the heat, somebody else will pay for the lighting, somebody else will mow the lawn, somebody else will uh, plow, plow the snow in the wintertime. Somebody else will do all that, somebody else will pay for all that, or it just didn't even occur to them. And um, somebody needs to pay for it. You can't just show up, you know, shake hands, complain about the sermon, sing the songs, go home, and think, wow, you know, I'm done. Um, 
our churches are not st state sponsored. Uh, the money needs to come from somewhere. So God is a realist and he understands that nothing is free. And so out the, throughout the Bible, he's provided means for his people to, um, to serve uh, and to minister to people's spiritual needs while, while also uh, being realistic about their own needs being met. So in, at the end of Exodus, um, Exodus 19 to 28 or so, uh, it lays out the foundations for the tabernacle and then, um, not the little, well, the literal foundations too, but um, for the tabernacle, for the, the priestly service of the Israelites before that, um, you had the patriarchs and you had kind of a disorganized religious system where people were, you know, kind of trying to remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then with Moses, God appears on Mount Sinai, gives a law code, gives complex rules of worship. And central to that was the tabernacle, which uh, under Solomon then becomes the temple. Um, and within the temple and the tabernacle, we have priests that are going to lead the people that are going to, um, sometimes they, they functioned as judges, kind of like a king or a ruler on, in a theocratic system. So how is Aaron and his sons and the Levites, uh, Levi being one of the tribes of Israel that was named the entire tribe, uh, one of the 12, um, well actually 13 divisions because there are two sons of Manasseh, um, Manasseh and Ephraim, two sons of Joseph and both were de designated as tribes. Um, but the whole tribe of Levi was de designated to work in the temple uh, or, or to serve the temple. So the Levites, because it was such a large tribe, were given cities throughout um, throughout the Promised Land to provide for themselves, and then they would, in various ways, provide services to the temple. But for the actual priestly family and those that were uh, charged with taking care of, of the temple or tabernacle, uh, they were to receive their uh, funds um, from the sacrifices themselves. So most of the sacrifices... Um, like when we think of a sacrifice, we tend to think of the um, the sin offerings, and the sin offerings, as as far as I remember, um, were completely burned, uh, and so there's nothing left. Uh, it's kind of an image of Jesus and how you know he completely sacrificed himself for us. I believe the Hebrew word for that is actually holocaust, uh, which um, I'm not sure exactly why that word was chosen for the the holocaust under the Nazis, but anyways. Um, but most of the sacrifices, the, pe the free will offerings, the peace offerings, um, the various offerings for the festival of booths and things like this, um, they would take the, their animals to the temple, they would be killed there, the blood would be drained and, and, and sprinkled in a ceremonial way, and then they would be cooked on the altar to a certain point, and then the priest would keep some, and uh, the, the people would keep the rest. And actually, most of these sacrifices... Uh, were to be feast times. So, it, I mean, I don't know if this is crude or not, but I think it's kind of helpful. It's kind of like a barbecue, like a family barbecue. You take your animal, you go to the priest, uh, he, you know, dresses it for you, gives you back uh, a cooked animal, and then you and your family and your friends, you know, sit down and, and you enjoy this feast. And, you know, the festival of booths, you're, you're camped out in a tent while you're chowing down on, on some cooked lamb or whatever. And the priest got to keep some of that, as well um, free will offerings. If you felt led um, 
you know, out, out of um, trying to make some sort of a deal with God. If, if you let me win this battle, then I'll give you this. Uh, the way you would give it to God is you would give it to the priests. Uh, as well, there was a lady, um, Samuel's mother, which I don't know her name uh, off the top of my head, but she really, really wanted a son. It was a polygamous relationship where she, she there was one husband with two wives, and the one wife had several sons and the other didn't, and so she felt really shamed by that. So she desperately prayed to God, please give me a son. If you give me a son, I'll give him to you. She got a son, and then she gave him to the temple, and then that was Samuel who became the next um, a very important prophet. In fact, there's two books in the Bible named after Samuel. Um, he was a judge, and he was a priest, and he was um, a, a leader of Israel in the transition between the judges and the kings. Um, so the priests were to live off of free will offerings. They were to live off of the regular sacrifices of the people. And... Um, there's some, so that's all laid out in like the end of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, some interesting passages to have a look at here would be Nehemiah 12. So in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is reestablishing worship of of Yahweh in um, in Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, and they rebuild the wall and they organize society and they're trying to reinstitute um, temple worship. And so in Nehemiah 12, 44, on that day men were also appointed over the chambers of the stores, the contributions, the first fruits of the tithes. Right, so I should have mentioned that um, first fruits. So the first time that um, you your animal gives birth, the first one belongs to God. The first, Some of the first fruits of the land, the first time a fruit tree uh, bears fruit, it belongs to God, etc. So there would be free will offerings, first fruits, and... Um, and portions of various other offerings. Um, so people are set up to to oversee uh, the bringing in of offerings and uh, to gather into them the fields of the cities and the portions required by law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. Um, it's kind of a nice little verse there that um, so there was administration, there, people were uh, basically given a temple tax, like you need to give this much of, of your produce to, to God, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. Why? So that we have a temple in Jerusalem, so that our society, you know, is is reorganized into a theocracy, so that so that you can go to the temple once a year, or three times a year, whatever it is, and worship God, and um, dedicate your kids there, and everything like that. Um, obviously, if if the priests aren't getting paid, they can't do that. They can't um, live on prayer and, and Bibles. They need um, they need food and money to do to live. Um, so continuing, verse forty five. For they perform the worship of their God and the service of purification, together with the singers and the gatekeepers, in accordance with the commandment of David and his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times. There were leaders of the singers, songs of praise, and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So they set up the whole deal, not just not just priests and, and um, the, the sacrifice sacrificial system, but they had singers. They had um, they had a whole deal um, of uh, uh, worship and you know a big big thing going on there at the temple. <clears throat> so all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due to the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required. 
and set apart the consecrated portions for the Levites, and Levites set apart the consecration portions for the sons of Aaron. Um, so everything is set up. People are getting their money so that they can work full-time in the temple, so that when you come to the temple, you have worship music, you have a beautiful building, you have incense, you are able to bring your, your sacrifice, and it's sacrifice to God in, in, in holiness and devotion, and you can have your feast days as, as, um, as God requires. Unfortunately, um, Nehemiah um, goes back home and comes back, and he realizes that uh, all of his great reforms did not continue. And so in um, 13.10, he, he finds a whole bunch of things that are out of, out of whack. Uh, he finds out that um, people have been extorting other people, that people have moved into the temple and are taking up residence in this place that have nothing to do with the sacrificial system. Um, they're just, just freeloading off of it. And in verse 10, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. And this is important for, again, as I said at the beginning, the pink money fairy does not wave his magic wand over all the people that preach and teach and, and, and serve God. If, if God's people aren't giving, people can't do the work. They're going to go find a job, right? Um, and uh, sometimes we have a very naive idea of, and kind of a childish idea of what happened, like money and, and how it works. So the Levites weren't getting paid. Um, they didn't have food to give to their kids. They didn't have money to buy clothes for their kids. And they said, this is stupid. I need to go get a job. And they left and got a job. So now you come to the temple. There's no singing. The, the floors aren't swept. Um, there's nobody left. To, I mean, maybe there's somebody left to do you know, the basic temple offerings, and that's it. So Nehemiah, as he's kind of famous for, he reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? So I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. Uh, at a different place, um, Nehemiah lines up the leaders and he yells at them and he shouts in their faces and uh, pulls out their, the beards of some of them. And uh, anyways, he had a way of motivating people. Um, but he says, look, you got to pay these people. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to do the job. Otherwise, we won't have worship of Yahweh in this place. Now, in addition to the official um, sacrificial system, the official temple system, that um, was great as kind of the bedrock of uh, Israelite society, the worship of God in in Jerusalem, but that often got corrupted, and so God raised up prophets um, as kind of an outside voice to try and bring the people back to God. And so, because they weren't attached to um, the temple, they didn't have a normal income stream, um, and so God provided for them in other ways. So Elijah, after he prophesied that there would be drought on the land, um, God directed him to go to a certain place where there was a river and he could drink from the river a creek in the wilderness and God sent ravens to provide for his needs. It's in 1 Kings 17.4. Um, so just miraculous provision, just money falling out of the sky, literally. Um, also, there was hospitality and uh, God uh, instructed him when the river dried up to go to a city uh, because... You know, the, the drought was getting more extreme. There was not water in the wilderness anymore. And the sources of water had towns around them. So go to a town 
where there's water, and then uh, he directed him to ask for food. Um, and so in Second Kings four eight we have the story. And I also have second first Kings seventeen ten. I'm not sure which one is the right one, but um, that uh, uh, he was to ask of a certain widow, and there was a widow out gathering sticks, and he asked her, "Can I please have some water and some food?" Um, which we would probably consider begging. Um, and she said, "Well, I can give you water." got a well here, um, but as far as food, we've only got enough for one more meal. Getting sticks to cook, and we're going to cook this food, and this is going to be our last meal, and then my son and I are going to starve to death. Um, it's amazing how in life and death situations, we become incredibly pragmatic and realistic about life. Um, and the prophet Elijah says, feed me first, and then feed yourself. And um, <clears throat> so she feeds him. And miraculously, uh, she finds out that there's enough for herself and her son. And she keeps doing that. She keeps feeding the prophet. And then there always seems to be just a little bit more left over for herself and for her son. Um, and so hospitality, even hospitality that hurts, is another way that uh, God provides for his prophets. I want to just mention something about this because... Um, there can be a lot of confusion about this. Giving to God, um, contrary to what some televangelists will tell you, is not a magic way to get to reproduce your money. Um, if you give God $10, it's not like he's going to give you back $20. You've got $20, he'll give you $40. Uh, it doesn't work that way. And um, like um, we know people that were in real financial difficulty and so they gave the last bit of money that they had to God to try and, you know, as an investment strategy. Uh, didn't work well for them. Um, and so um, I, I would just caution against some sort of an idea that if you give to God, it's kind of this mechanical, God will always give you more. Um, but what I have found and what my wife and I have, have really found and what we've heard a lot of people say is that when you give God, um, you know, a tithe or, or whatever, you give God, you prioritize God, you give Him the first fruits, you, um, you're generous with your money uh, in a continual way. Um, and not just when you feel like it, but you, and even when you're, you're broke, you give God, gener give to God generously. We find that there's always just a little bit more. There's always just a little bit more. And yeah, you need to manage your money well. It's not a magic poof sort of formula. But I think that that's what it's talking about here is, is um, as we are faithful to God with the little that we have, God is faithful to us in making sure we have enough to live. Another option that um, the ancient prophets afford, uh, used was... Um, uh, communal living, and so Second Kings six, it mentions that um, there was a community of prophets around Elisha. Elijah was kind of the first. Well, uh, he started uh, a tradition of prophets in Israel. There were a few prophets before him, but Elijah kind of is the first big one. And then Elisha um, was kind of was his disciple, and he he lived a lot longer and had a much longer ministry over a significant portion of the time between. Um, 
King Solomon and uh, the Babylonian captivity. And uh, Elisha had a group of prophets that all lived together in some sort of a dorm. And um, there's a mention that one of them had a wife and some kids. Uh, so it was kind of um, a commune. And uh, it mentions at one point they all went out to cut down trees to build a house together. Another time it's mentioned uh, somebody went out to go get wild mushrooms and and various herbs to make a communal stew. So there's communal living, communal working, uh, and this gives um, the prophets um, the ability to work uh, in the ministry, um, whatever that was. And we know very little about what Elisha did day to day, if he just kind of sat and read what he had of the Torah, or spent his time in prayer. I don't really know, but he had... Uh, he was freed up to do time, to do ministry work uh, because the community was providing for each other's needs and individuals within the commune um, you know had more free time because they were all working together and they were sharing their resources as well uh, when when one member uh, like one man died leaving behind a widow and her kids and and God miraculously provided for their needs so that they wouldn't have to sell be sold into slavery. Um, so communal living is definitely one option that uh, the ancient prophets used in the Old Testament. Another option is um, king's sponsorship. So Jeremiah 37.21. Um, this might be a strange way to get this option because uh, to, to prove this because this was when Jeremiah got thrown in prison. But um, it was a blessing in disguise because it was during a siege, during an intense famine, and uh, it's recorded that uh, Jeremiah was given a loaf of bread every day until there was no more bread in the city. Um, so the king valued him enough to feed him very, 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 very precious resources. Um, when everybody else was starving to death, Jeremiah um, continued to have resources and food given to him. Um, so at times, the prophets, although they were usually um, anti-establishmentarian, uh, they were usually against the establishment, usually prophesying against the temple, usually prophesying against the kings who were worshipping false gods. Uh, sometimes they were sponsored by the king, um, potentially also by rich people, although I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, so pretty much just kingly sponsorship. Um, and then hospitality. And other than the one of oil, um, yeah, that's why I have two references here. Um, Elisha traveled a lot, and uh, he passed often by the house of a certain woman, and she built a room upstairs for him so that him and his servant could stay there with her. And so, um, you know, hospitality was kind of an ongoing thing. <clears throat> and it's, it seems pretty clear that Elisha... Uh, was sponsored by the king as well, although I don't think it's ever explicitly mentioned. Finally, tent making or simply working for themselves. So the Levites, although they were a holy tribe and worked in the temple, they also had fields and cities and they worked. Um, and Amos at one point says, I am neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet. I am a grower of figs and some other things uh, in Amos 7.14. And uh, so he says, look, I... I have, a, I have a day job. Just God came to me with this vision and told me that I need to come prophesy to you. And um, the prophecy that Amos gives to the king of Samaria, I believe, is really uh, shocking. He says, 
wife is going to become a prostitute and, and things like this, and, and that God's judgment would be on the city. And uh, But anyways, Amos um, didn't get any money for what he did. Uh, he just, he, uh, but, you know, the book of Amos is pretty short, and his, his prophecy is pretty short. Um, God grabbed somebody that, that had a day job that was working hard, and um, asked him to do a, a simple task. He did it, and then he went back to his job. So that's the Old Testament. Let's continue now. I could break it here, but let's just keep going with uh, what does, uh, how do people live in the New Testament? So Jesus, uh, until he was around 30, uh, worked as a carpenter or as a craftsman, a skilled craftsman of some sort, working with wood. Uh, there's some ambiguity in the Greek, uh, but um, he worked hard until he was called to ministry, and uh, the Spirit led him to be baptized and then led in the wilderness and, and somehow he was he knew that God wanted him to start his ministry at that point and um, after he started his full-time ministry we don't see Jesus ever working again uh, he had about a three-year ministry and we see him walking places we see him getting in boats places we see him teaching in various places we see him um, sleeping in people's houses we see him um, spending all night in prayer potentially passing the night under the stars at times, we never see him working. And so um, he had himself to think about, as well as at least 12 disciples, and potentially, I mean, at one point he sent out 72 disciples. He had a group of women that traveled with him and, um, you know, and were providing for his needs. He had a large entourage of at l up to, you know, several hundred people um, that somehow need to be fed, need to be housed, need to be taken care of. And that number went up and down depending on his popularity, but um, at least him and the Twelve, at the very least. And some of them might have had their wives along. It's hard to say. Um, so in Luke 8, 3, it says uh, that um, there were women that traveled with him that provided for him out of their private means. And it mentions that one is... Um, the wife of Chusa, the, the steward of Herod's finances. So um, one of the women was um, exceptionally wealthy, and she traveled with Jesus and provided for him out of her personal needs. Uh, and there were other women as well. Uh, I don't know why it specifically mentions that uh, that they were women that were providing, but this is what, what, was, rec uh, what was recorded. Um, as well, there's a commandment in the Old Testament that Jews were not to um, go over their uh, grapevines twice. They were not to go over their olive trees twice, their almond trees, whatever. Go over one time, and then if you missed anything, leave it. It's for the poor people in the land. It's for the foreigners. It's for, um, I mean, uh, yeah, for people that need it. And so Jesus took advantage of this, and we know this because at least one time, Jesus and his disciples were walking in the field, and uh, his disciples started picking grain and um, rubbing it in their hands to um, to break off the hard shell. And they were eating the grain inside, which is not really a very hearty meal, but if you're hungry enough, um, you can do that. And he was reproved for that because they were working technically on Sunday. Uh, and, and we have this dialogue about the Son of Man being Lord of the Sabbath. But um, there was this... Uh, they they basically took advantage of food coupons or food stamps or kind of the social assistance program in that God instituted in Jerusalem of the day. 
or like welfare kind of. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but uh, that's kind of how I would draw a modern equivalent to what Jesus was doing in that verse. And he made very large use of hospitality. So Luke 10, 38, um, and John 11 are two places you could look. Um, Jesus stayed with Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus stayed with um, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, very famously. Uh, Jesus stayed with a number of people um, throughout the book of, or throughout the Gospels. Um, and uh, you know, at one point he said you know, to Nicodemus, come down from there for I'm coming to your house today. Um, he said something like that. That's what it says in the, in the children's song that I remember. You come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house. Anyways. Um, so at times, at least in that case, uh, he asked specifically uh, for hospitality. Uh, he said, I, I want to come to your house for supper. So Jesus, again, he does not have, um, he doesn't work, he doesn't encourage his disciples to work. Um, they live on on gifts, and people are traveling with them, buying stuff for them, giving them gifts. Um, they live on social assistance and, and resources that they that, have, that are available to them, and they live on the hospitality of people that believe in their ministry, believe in their cause. I should mention here, Judas was the one that carried the money purse and, um, and distributed the funds. So they had some sort of a system, like they had some resources that uh, they had a money purse and they had a treasurer. Um, to for to keep the money purse. Now, Jesus sent out his twelve disciples, uh, and later on, he sent out seventy-two disciples to um, to preach the gospel, to and to and to share the message in places that he couldn't. So he was multiplying his his efforts that way, and he told them how to live. And it's probably a reflection of he himself how he himself lived, or it, he could have been asking them to do something more extreme to test their faith. It's that's also a possibility. Um, so what he says to them in Matthew 10, uh, 7 to 15, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting, and if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, um, nor heed your words, as you go out of the house of the city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So, Jesus tells his disciples to... You notice he's, they're not told to work. Um, this is not a tent-making situation. Jesus was not a tent-maker. He did not encourage his disciples to be tent-makers at this point. He told them to go and live on hospitality because their work is to preach the, the gospel, to heal the sick, to um, proclaim the kingdom of God. Um, he told them not to live on their own private means. Do not bring a purse. Do not bring a money bag. Um, you are going to live on what people will give you. And if they don't give you very much, you won't live very well. Um, if you, if they're generous to you, you will live well. But you live on what people will give you. Uh, he mentions again in 10.10 that the worker is worthy of his wages. This is real work that the disciples are doing. And, oh, buddy. Yeah. 
and they shouldn't feel that um, they shouldn't feel in any way ashamed of of receiving work. This isn't charity. This is wages. Uh, they are preaching. They're teaching. They're they're traveling. They're working hard for the king, and uh, the worker is worthy of his wages. Um, is Jesus here mandating some sort of a vow of poverty? Many people have read this, and this is where the monks in the monastic movement, the Desert Fathers before them, um, get their vow of poverty, that they believe they should um, not keep any uh, savings, that they should give all their money to the poor, and that they should um, you know, live lives very close to the ground with no without owning property, without owning um, stuff. And uh, most monastic movements today are still um, one of the key tenets, and there's lots of different ways of being a Christian monk or nun, but one of the things that would tie most of the monastic movements together is a vow of poverty, that it's communal living and you don't personally own anything, or very, very little. Um, is that what Jesus is mandating here? And I think, and I do apologize because I did record the previous one a few times and I forget exactly what I shared. Um, but I think I talked about this in the previous podcast that we need to hold this part in tension with um, at the end of Luke where Jesus says, um, um, pause this here. where Jesus says to them in Luke twenty-two thirty-three, he says to them, uh, sorry, 34. I say to you, Peter, uh, where are we? When I sent you out without money belts and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now, whoever has money belt is to take it along, likewise, also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he who is numbered among the transgressors, um, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Um, and so, obviously we could go there and talk about pacifism. Uh, I I think that this is um, a bad place to go for pacifism because pacifism is rooted in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. I don't think that this one verse um, refutes everything that Jesus said in Matthew uh, five to seven, and then Luke as in you know, all the Gospels. Um, but what does seem to be clearly refuted, because that's what he's drawing into focus here, is when I sent you out without money belt and beg, did you lack anything? No. But now, whoever has a money belt should take it with them. Um, so it seems as though this vow of poverty uh, was for a specific time, was for a training mission. Um, and uh, now, in the new time, we're to be as, as innocent as doves and as wise as, as uh, serpents because God is sending out us out like sheep in the midst of wolves. And I, I think I did talk about this last time. Um, but it does seem as though, it doesn't seem as though Christians should take a vow of poverty um, in Christian ministry. There will be some people that, um, and yeah, there will be some people that, that have a specific special call uh, to this. And, I mean, if you're going to be in ministry, look, you're going to be poor. You're going to be more poor than the average person. Um, if you have the capacity to get a master's in theology and go be a pastor, I mean, you could have got a master's in medicine and been a doctor, and you would be a lot richer. Um, or whatever. Uh, you need to know that if you pursue God in ministry, you're going to be 
you know, there's going to be poverty associated with that. Um, but I don't think that there's any specific biblical passage that says all Christians need to, you know, um, try to get rid of their money um, to be in ministry. And I think we talked about that last time. And something I could have mentioned when I was talking about that, about is it okay for Christians to live well on the gospel? Um, as Protestants, we really believe in the priesthood of all believers. So there's no distinction, there's no difference between a missionary and, um, you know, Job Lowe, Pusiter. Um, there's no difference between the pastor, um, the clergy, and the laity, in the sense that we're all called to be Christ followers. We're all called to share the gospel. We're all called, we're all equal, and we very much reject the dichotomy um, that's explicitly taught in the Catholic Church that the priesthood is something special and, and different. And so, if you think that missionaries and pastors should take a vow of poverty, logically, as Protestants, that means that everybody should. Um, that means that you should. <laughs> and so, this is where, again, I would say, I think that pastors should should have the same um, same expectation of a lifestyle as the people in the congregation. Basically, I mean, a uh, pastor is going to tend to make less, you know, probably 80% of whatever the average is in their congregation. I think missionaries is about the same, although that's a different issue that we'll get to in a little bit. So Jesus did not work. Uh, he lived on gifts, he lived on social assistance, and he lived on hospitality. He taught his disciples not to work, but or not to seek secular employment, obviously to work very hard in the gospel, but to live on hospitality um, and to, yeah, to live on hospitality, basically. Um, after Jesus, uh, we move on to the, the Pentecost, and the disciples are all together living, trying to figure out how to, um, how to do this thing, how to, how to be Christ followers in the world. And um, they're all together in uh, the upper room. The upper room probably belonged to uh, the parents of Mark, the Mark that uh, is the author of um, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I believe it's the same John Mark that traveled with Paul. I might be wrong on that. But definitely the one that wrote um, the book of Mark and, and was a travel companion of Peter. Uh, just a little bit of information there. So, so the apostles were all... The apostles and, and a lot of the early Christians were in this large house of a rich person in Jerusalem. And they were in an upper room. And they were living off hospitality. Somebody gave them, said that they could live there. And this was kind of their home base, their base of operations. When Peter was captured and um, then he was miraculously released, he came to the house of John Mark um, and knocked on the door. And this is where Dorcas was like, hey, he's a ghost and stuff like this. Um, so... But they needed to eat, uh, and their hosts weren't able to, after the, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to their number. Well, they can't all live there. They can't all eat there. Um, no matter how rich these people are, they can't uh, fund everybody. And so what happened is people started selling their fields uh, and, and liquidating their assets and giving them to the apostles. And so it became a communal living situation, such similar to what the priests or the uh, prophets did in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, and so together they were able to pool their resources, and um, and they were able to live. Now I want to underscore here that the apostles were not 
seeking secular employment. In fact, it seems that nobody was. Everybody was devoting themselves to prayer, to fasting, um, to to preaching in the temple, in um, and and sharing the gospel. At this point, and it wasn't even it didn't even seem to be on their radar. In Acts uh, six one to four, it talks about how um, there was some inequality in how the money, the resources were distributed that um, the widows from true Jerusalem Jews were given more uh, food than people from, you know, Jews that were um, not of, of true ethnic, not truly ethnic Jews, but were from outside. And so there was a dispute that arose and the apostles said, look, we need to devote ourselves completely to prayer and fasting and teaching. And thank God that they did, so that we have a good foundation for you know the New Testament, and we have, um, but um, and they appointed other people to administrate uh, funds and feeding and things like that. And so this isn't even a question of um, seeking secular employment. They they weren't even they didn't even want to do administrative details because they said my gifting, my calling is so important. I need to be focused on this full time. And um, I think that this is, we don't often have the courage to say this, but I think this is the heart of, of being in ministry, is to believe that your ministry is important enough that um, you should be working at it full time. And I'm not going to take myself for an example here, but I want to take somebody that I really admire like crazy right now is William Lane Craig. And I think he is a walking encyclopedia of information on apologetics and um, world events and um, uh, physics and contemporary science and philosophy and um, everything he says um, I mean every not everything he says but everything all the podcasts he records he teaches um, and that is recorded turns into podcasts um, is so incredibly helpful. I mean, it gets shared and shared and shared and listened to by thousands of people, and then he writes books, and they get read by thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And it's equipping a whole generation. It's changing the face of evangelicalism um, to where we're able to do apologetics and we're actually able to defeat um, the objections that are brought to us by atheism and by secularism. Um, do I think that William Lane Craig should take 20 hours off of his teaching and preaching and um, writing schedule to work uh, at, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken or, or to, you know, whatever kind of job he could get? No, no, I don't. I think he should work full time in what he's doing. I mean, you, and you could say the same thing about John Piper or John MacArthur or whoever your favorite teacher or speaker is. You want them to to be able to completely devote themselves to their work so that they have the time and energy to to produce as many resources as possible um, after, you know, they put all the time in to figure out um, how to get to the place of being able to teach in that way. Now, communal living, um, which is funded on liquidation of assets, is not sustainable. Um, if they were renting out their fields, that would be sustainable. But selling their fields buying food with it, this is clearly not sustainable. And some people um, have said this is why there was a famine in Jerusalem eventually, that eventually they ran out of fields to sell and everybody got poor. Um, actually, the 
the famine in Jerusalem had to do. It's a recorded famine. We know what happened. I forget exactly what happened, but it wasn't just Jerusalem. It was that area that didn't have rain or something like that. So it seemed like their situation was working. Um, but it was very short-lived because there was a persecution after something like four or five years. And all these people were dispersed everywhere. And it doesn't seem like this communal living situation was reestablished anywhere else. It was a short-term thing uh, in Jerusalem that, um, and then God broke it up and sent people everywhere. And as I read this, as I was looking at this for this podcast, my theory on that, uh, because a lot of people have different theories as to how we should live. I mean, Mennonites take this a lot of, um, a lot, like the older generation of Mennonites, the first couple generations of Mennonites certainly took this as this is the way that Christians should live. Um, and, and established Mennonite communities, Hutterite communities, Amish communities. Uh, I should say the, say the early Anabaptists took this. And um, But my personal feeling at this point in time is that this was God's way of, of creating a school of discipleship and a missionary school that these people, a lot of people, were coming into Jerusalem from all over the empire and they spent time, and, and they were just going to come for a weekend to, to celebrate um, the Passover, but they got saved with the preaching of Paul or of Peter, and you know several thousand were added to their number, and they all stayed there for a few years uh, at this you know place where they they could just study and pray and read, and people were were paying for their lodging and they were paying for a communal situation where, I mean, can you just imagine living in that in the middle of that energy? It would have been amazing, and then the persecution blew that all up, and everybody went everywhere else. But they had a few years of a foundation, so that, uh, and I think this was God's way of then forming missionaries and then sending them out, which really explains why the gospel went so quickly throughout the Mediterranean. One of the reasons why. So um, that's a little bit of information on that. And again, um, the apostles followed in um, in what Jesus had commanded that they uh, they did not work. They focused on on preaching and teaching. I should mention in between Jesus and Pentecost, um, they did work briefly. Uh, Jesus, uh, Peter said, "I'm going to go fishing." Other people came with him. They went fishing, caught some fish. Uh, but then Jesus showed up, and they left the fish on the beach. They never ended up selling them to. Um, to provide for their means. But you could say that they also engaged somewhat in tent making. Okay, so we're up at 46 minutes. We do not have time to discuss Paul. In the next podcast, let's discuss um, the the ministry style of Paul and how he funded his ministry. We've got a lot of information about Paul, and Paul had a very diverse ministry, and he had very um, nuanced and um, complex ways of explaining that. So we'll... We'll look specifically at Paul for the next podcast, and that'll probably take up the entire podcast. Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, the fact that you care about us, and you care about us learning, and you care about um, the gospel going forward, and um, you care about providing for the people that do that. And so I just pray that you would um, use this material to equip people and train people and, and send them out. In Jesus' name, amen.